This has come to the table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. These studies are presented every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. at our church at 3800 East Pershing Boulevard in Cheyenne, Wyoming. If you'd like to contribute to these studies, you can make a donation at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne-WY giving. We're in Matthew 7. We're going to wrap up the Sermon on the Mount tonight, and then, if you get the will of the Lord, we're going to move forward in the Gospel, and we're going to glean some of the less concentrated teachings of Jesus out of the Scripture from there before we move on to the next sizable portion. As we said in our introductions, um, studying the teachings of Jesus is a little bit more challenging than studying the teachings of Paul or of Peter or of any of the other major biblical authors because they're not all concentrated in one spot. You have to chew through the biblical narrative, pull it out of its his, of its uh, historical time frame, teach it from there, but you can't isolate it completely from the historical narrative because then you lose your context and, and then it becomes subject to everybody's wackadoodle interpretations and that's just no good. We want the truth, even if the truth is uncomfortable, don't we? That's the best way to go. That's the best way to be. An uncomfortable truth is better than a nice, comfy misinterpretation. There, that's a little bit more charitable than saying lie. <laughs> so let's pick it up from where we left off last week with just a little bit of review. So beginning in verse 15, there's two paragraphs here at verse 15 and verse 21. And it goes all the way down through verse 23 about being wary of false prophets not weary you can be weary of them too but being wary of false prophets false teachers false ministers people that come to you like the devil dressed as angels of light dressed as ministers of truth when in fact they're pumping a bunch of nonsense into your head or they're mixing just enough truth with uh, bad doctrine or false doctrine to make the false doctrine more palatable and more believable. He cautions us to beware of such. He says in verse 15, beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves. Now that's not, that's not hard to understand. That really isn't hard to understand. Someone coming to you ostensibly with the gospel message or something from the word of God, but deep down in their heart, they've got an ulterior motive. And a lot of times the ulterior motives that you find in the hearts of false prophets and uh, teachers of false doctrines and promoters of false doctrines is something that is carnal or natural in origin. There's, there's some kind of a motive there. They're looking for money or they're looking for possessions or they're looking for prestige, honor, and the praise of men. That's disgusting because that will always skew the objective and the, tr the true approach to the word that we, uh, that we have to have. It will always skew that. Preachers shouldn't be working crowds. We shouldn't be working the crowd as though, let's see if this works. Okay, well, let's see if this works. Now I'll tell a joke or something to break things up or because everybody's staring at me like frozen fish sticks or something like that. I'll do something to kind of just shake it up a little bit. But it's not because I'm, I'm changing the message or the word in order to get a better response. That's what we're talking about. Working the crowd, saying things that work rather than saying things that are true. We want things that are true. 
Like we said, even if they're uncomfortable, I'd rather have someone tell me the truth and it make me uncomfortable because it touches on somewhere where I'm living at that I need to change or I need to pray about or something like that. I'd rather have the truth than to have someone pat me on the back falsely. And there's a proverb to that effect that says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That could be taken a couple of different ways, but wounds inflicted upon you by a friend, a true friend, are not inflicted upon you with the intent to do harm, but with the intent to help. That's what reproof and correction and even, even a sharp rebuke is intended to be a corrective measure, not a humiliating measure, not with the intent to, to hurt or to maim someone emotionally or something like that, but it's to get us on the right track, to help get us on the right track. Now, some people, it takes that to get them on the right track. Not everybody requires that to get them on the right track. But, you know, it's kind of funny. Those that take, a, it takes a, a sharp rebuke in order to get their attention and get them uh, back on the straight and narrow, people like that, once they're on the straight and narrow, they tend to stay there. They tend to stay there. Their paths are not easily changed. They're not easily swayed to the right hand or the left. Now, that being said, not to say that those that can be dealt with more easily than that are prone to drift either. It all depends on the person. He says, Beware of false prophets which come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravening wolves, ravening for something of the world. Sometimes it's even a sexual ulterior motive. Did you know that? There have been lots of folks that have been like that. They come on the scene as proclaiming to be prophets, and they're just as corrupt and full of lust as anybody out there in the world. Beware of such people. Beware of such people. Ye shall know them, verse 16, ye shall know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes of thorns or figs of thistles or grapes from thorns or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bringeth forth good fruit. All right, so how can you tell if the prophet, preacher, teacher, pastor, evangelist, or whatever you're listening to is right on? Is, how can you tell that they're right? One of the first indicators is by looking at the fruit of their life. It's one of the first indicators. It's not always the only indicator, but it is one of the first indicators. If they're embroiled in all kinds of scandal and they're always uh, in the midst of that kind of trouble, uh, something's going on. Something's going on. They're either guilty or they're just very unwise in how they live their life and they open themselves up to all kinds of accusations. Look at the fruit of their life. Look at the fruit of their life. You shall know them by their fruit. Every good tree bringeth forth good fruit, but a corrupt tree bringeth forth evil fruit. And Jesus makes it very clear in the following verse that a good tree cannot bring forth evil fruit, neither can a corrupt tree bring forth good fruit. You can't have, and not that I'm saying that apple trees are corrupt, okay, but an apple tree cannot bring forth a pear. It doesn't work. Orange trees don't bring forth bananas. There you go. Boy, that would really be confusing. You, you definitely don't get a banana from an orange tree. It, it doesn't work. Trees bring forth the fruit of their own kind. And so if you have a corrupt tree, if you have a person with a corrupt heart, if you have a false prophet, a false teacher, a false apostle, a false whatever the case may be, he cannot bring forth good fruit because he is in a state of corruption. He's in a state of corruption. So watch the fruit of their life. 
Watch the fruit of their life. What would you think about me if you saw me get out of the get out of the car, pulling into the church parking lot, and accidentally slam my hand in that car door and just let loose with a bruce a blue streak of profanity a mile wide? What would you even think? Oh no, we're not we're not taking comments on that one. <laughs> Whatever you would think, it wouldn't be good. It wouldn't be good. You might even say. I am in the wrong place. Now, hopefully you wouldn't say that. Hopefully you would say, I need to pray for Pastor Snyder, and then you'd stay faithful. But one could hardly blame you if you left under such circumstances. When the pastor's got that kind of a heart problem, what else is going on in that heart? You know what I'm saying? So watch the fruit of their life. Watch the fruit of their life to tell what kind of tree they are. Every tree that bringeth forth good fruit, excuse me, every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Wherefore by their fruits ye shall know them. Now, that usually gets taken out of context and, and applied to you knowing any kind of a believer by their fruit. And you can. That's valid. It applies to any believer. You can tell a lot of times by the fruit of their life exactly where, the, where they're at in God, which is to say either right or wrong. But even then, not always, because when you got someone who's brand new to the faith, there's a lot going on in their life that God's going to be working on. And so don't automatically assume that just because they do something that is clearly unbiblical, that they're uh, that they're an absolute hypocrite. They don't know God. They've never known God. Oh, my goodness. If they died right now, they'd split hell wide open. Don't assume that they've been saved for a week, a month, a couple of months. God's working on them. Be patient. Pray for them. Don't abort God's children. What do you mean? Don't rush up there and be fast to rebuke them in the name of Jesus. How could you do that? You're supposed to be Christian. I rebuke you in the name of Jesus. You might run them off. We care for the children of God, do we not? We'd want someone to go a little easy on us or at least not come at us like, um, like a wrecking ball. Not come at us like that or any other way that would be destructive, we'd like to be dealt with perhaps more gently than harshly, wouldn't we? I'd like to think so. Well, then let's be the same way. Let's go back to Jesus' teaching about whatsoever ye would that men do unto you, do ye unto them. Let's remember that. Always remember that when it comes to dealing with people and uh, interacting with one another. So he says... Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom. Now, we talked about this. This was pretty clear. But it ties into this same, to the same lesson about being aware, being aware of false prophets, teachers, preachers, apostles, etc. Being aware of them. He says, Not everyone that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. But he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. So again, very clear language, very plain language here. What does that mean? Hypocrites don't get to go. Hypocrites don't make it to the kingdom. People that are willingly, obstinately, knowingly putting on an act with no intention of backing up that act with the life that actually follows. People that are putting forth a pretense and not even trying. They're not going to make it in because their hearts are not clean. They are not perfect towards God. It's as simple as that. Many will say unto me, verse 22, in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name and in thy name have cast out devils and in thy name done many wonderful works? And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. 
I never knew you. Just because you stood behind a pulpit and preached the gospel doesn't necessarily mean that a person is right with God. And I'm not trying to say that to cast doubt on Reverend DeRyder or on myself or anyone else that comes through this pulpit necessarily. All we're saying is that the things that people do aren't always a 100% indicator of the condition of their heart. Okay? Because there are false prophets and there are false teachers and there are false brethren, the apostle said, that have already crept in unawares. And there are people that, that come to church in that condition with the intent to remain in that condition. Uh, a lot of folks that you find like that, and i got to be careful how I say this, because not everybody fits that bill, right? And certainly not all church hoppers fit that bill, but a lot of times church hoppers do fit that bill. They hop because they prefer the role of a teacher or a master or whatever. They prefer that role to the role of a student. And so they want to come into existing congregations and then spread their influence and their wisdom and their expertise. And you, you can tell there's a right way to do it and there's a wrong way to do it. There's a right way to do it and a person's doing it in humility and very carefully and, uh, and mindful of... Uh, mindful of propriety and protocol and things like that. And you can tell when someone's coming in with the attitude of, I am a great spiritual person and I have blessed your congregation with my presence and I am doing you a favor by being here. And do you know what I'm talking about? There are people that are like that. They go, to, they go from church to church like that. They stick around for a while and then the wind blows. You know, what do I mean by that? The preacher says something that they don't like and then they blow away. Suddenly they're not around anymore. They're like that peculiar breed of bird that uh, lodge in your branches for a while, eat your fruit, criticize the last four trees that they used, and then they criticize you, and then they make a mess, and then they leave, thinking they did you a favor. So, what does all this come under the heading of? Just beware. Folks that come, we want them to come. And I've made this statement many times, you know, because there's lots of bombastic and authoritative statements that I think some some ministers like to make and sometimes they're good statements but you know I've heard this one uh, a number of times you know I'd rather have 10 people in church that were rock solid and on fire for God than 200 people that were all half-baked and lukewarm and uh, but my opinion is I want them all I want them if they're rock solid and on fire for God and I want all the lukewarm half-baked one too because if they come then they have a chance to hear the word and there's a chance that this Holy Spirit might set something on fire in their heart. And then they'll stop being lukewarm and half-baked and everything else. So I want them all. I don't want crazy. We're not equipped for crazy. Okay? I mean, absolute certifiable rubber room straitjacket crazy. We can't. We, we, we don't have a place for that. Okay? Maybe when we're much bigger and we have some kind of a program in place. We don't have that. We're still more or less in pioneer mode. And we're small. And uh, so we want sane folks that can recognize when the Holy Spirit of God, you know what I mean, mostly sane, not the crazy that you're thinking that you are, but they, they can recognize when the Spirit of God is working on their life or is working on their heart, trying to speak to their heart and draw them in a particular direction, lead them in a particular direction. So let's move on. Not everybody that says, Lord, Lord's going to enter into the kingdom. All right, let's move on. Verse 24, Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. 
And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. So the first half of that teaching is very clear, but it communicates a very plain, a very plain spoken message to us, a very practical down to earth message. Jesus teaches we ought to obey whatsoever Jesus said that we ought to do in so much as it pertains to the New Testament believer. Remember, he was teaching Old Testament Jews. Now, so far, everything that we've covered in these red letter studies has a direct Christian application to our lives. They're not exclusive to the Jews. Now we get into some of the back chapters of Matthew when he deals with some end times things. He's going to be speaking. He's going to be uh, speaking to them on some in some things that are going to pertain exclusively to them because of the exclusive role they will have in end in end times event. The church isn't going to be around. The church is going to be caught up by them. We will have been raptured. We will have gone to meet our Lord in the air. So just a sneak preview here, okay? If you've been inclined to go and, and dig around in the revelation of Jesus Christ to John on the Isle of Patmos here in the end of the book. If you've been inclined to dig around in that and you've read some of the horrifying things that are coming the way of the world in those days, take heart. Don't let your heart be troubled. The, the New Testament believer has no place in that. In, in terms of that period of time that is popularly known as the tribulation, if you've heard about that, okay? So if you get, if you come home to your house someday and you see a colorful flyer hanging on your doorknob inviting you to end time seminar, you know, uh, held at whatever place at such and such a time, learn about the beast and the false prophet and the lake of fire and then the 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 what's it's with seven horns and 20 eyes and all the things that he talks about uh, very clearly in a symbolic and metaphoric sense over there in the old testament or over there in, in the revelation not that all of it is symbolic not by a hundred miles but there are some things that clearly are if you get something like that hanging on your door do yourself a favor tear it in small pieces and just drop it in your trash can because the chances are probably, and I'm just going to pull a statistic out of the air with nothing to back it up, okay, other than just experience. So I'm not going to make it sound like it's too authoritative. Chances are probably eight times, maybe even nine, maybe even ten times out of ten, it's going to be a complete waste of your time because it's going to be all kinds of wrong, and they're going to have things mixed up half a dozen different ways. There's a time to go digging into the Revelation. I'm not saying that it's something that a believer shouldn't read. We ought to read it. It contains the hope of the hope and the promise of our future, and there's a lot of great stuff in there. Many people avoid it because they're terrified of what's in it, because they don't understand what it applies to and who it's actually intended for, okay? God has no reason to pour out his wrath upon the church. Okay? The church is his is the body of Christ. The church is his heritage, it's his people. Okay, he's working on us now. Okay, he's perfecting us now. He doesn't have to subject us to the manifest horrors of that time period in order to get us to the place where he wants us to be. So more on that perhaps another time for another study. If you have questions, feel free to ask. In the meantime, because rather that you ask and you know have a, a good understanding than a wrong one, but what are we saying here? Whosoever heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. So this is a very pragmatic teaching. If we do what Jesus says, 
If we embrace what Jesus commands, if we do that, then it's an evidence of our condition, or should be an evidence of our condition with Him and our whole life. And part of this was part of that series of messages that we preached about the altar in the temple, the altar, the foundation in the temple, if you remember that. Those were our Sunday morning messages for about three weeks in a row. And this will build your house upon a rock. Observing those things which Jesus tells us to do will build your house upon a rock. And not Jesus' teachings only, but the apostles as well, for they taught and wrote according to the same Holy Spirit of God. That's why we take the whole Bible. And that's what makes us, by the way, a full gospel church. Now, I didn't put it out there on the sign because that, that term has lost a lot of its meaning, I think, in society. That, uh, that uh, It's not really a denominational label per se, but it's, uh, it's almost. It's a, and all it means is uh, a church that embraces, teaches, and preaches the entire Scripture from Genesis through Revelation. That we're not just red letters of Christ only and we don't believe anything else. Or that we're not just New Testament only and that the Old Testament is fit for nothing but to be torn up and tossed into the fireplace or used to level a crooked table. Okay, We are full gospel Christians in a full gospel church. The whole Bible is inspired by God and is given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit and is profitable, the Bible even says, for teaching, for correction, for reproof, for, uh, for all of these different things that are profitable to us on a spiritual level. And a lot of that even translates over into the natural. And we've talked a lot about that, I think, haven't we? And you have people that live a good and an upright life. What does that do for society around them? It makes the whole society or most of society good and upright too. And that's happened in the past and it can happen again. It absolutely can happen again. It's, it's happened in the past many times, and I always think back to, the, I don't remember if it was the Welsh revivals of a hundred and, so, and some odd years ago, where the judges in that community wore white gloves because they had no cases to try. Wow. You want to talk about an effective revival. There was no crime. There were no criminals. The jails were empty, man. Picture that. Think of Cheyenne in that kind of a condition. Wouldn't that be nice? And that fellow wouldn't have been driving on the wrong side of the road. Let's move on. The rain descended. We already covered that. And everyone that heareth these things of mine and doeth them not shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house. And it fell. And not only did it fall, he says, great was the fall of it. Now again, the lesson here is clear too. And it's 24 through 27. Verse, verses 24 through 27. It's all the same lesson. If we do what God wants us to do, then it's like a man building his house on a rock solid foundation. The trials of life are going to come. Things are going to go bad on the job. There's going to be sickness. There's going to be illness. There'll be family drama. There'll be non-family drama. There'll be problems in all the same ways that there are problems in life, okay? To live, on the, to live on the earth in a fallen world is to experience suffering and is to experience problems. So it's, it's naive and it's immature and it's undeveloped to believe that being a Christian means life is a bed of roses. Far from it. If it is a bed of roses, there's plenty of thorns in there too. There really is. 
Okay, but that's not God's fault. That's the consequence of living on a broken earth. And that's what it's going to be until God wraps this thing up completely. Calls his church home. Brings other things to pass that tie into all of that. And ultimately ushers in an eternal perfect state. Where there will be no suffering, no sickness, no, uh, no death, no disease. None of these things. All right, All of these things will be unhappy memories. And you can meditate on what that kind of a world is actually like sometime. And, and, and it will blow your mind. But in the meantime... When these troubles and trials that are common to every man, woman, and child across the earth, when they come up against your spiritual house, your spiritual house will not fall because you have founded it upon a rock. What that means is your faith in God might shake or shudder, but it's not going to crack and it's not going to break. And it's certainly not going to come crashing down unless, unless we give up the fight throw in the towel and then what that is likened unto is a man whose house was founded upon a rock who then doused it in gasoline and burnt it to the ground okay we're not immune from self-destruction no believer is we're simply empowered and enabled by the spirit of god almighty to not self-destruct and a real rock solid believer believe it or not there are certain things that you don't have to contend with. There are certain things you don't have to contend with that are, that are stress-induced, okay? Now, I'm not talking about neurological issues and uh, chemical imbalances and things like that, which can be a real, a real, a very real struggle. I'm not talking about those things, but there are some things that, there are some battles you just don't even have to fight as a believer. You don't. The rain descended, the floods came. The winds blew, beat upon that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Why? Because the person who hears this, these teachings of Jesus, the person who hears the Word of God and does not let it shape their life, theirs is a life, that theirs is a house that's built on sand, and it's going to shift, and it's going to flood, and the wind's going to hit it, and we know about wind in this town. We don't know much about flooding. There has been some pretty bad flooding in this in, in Cheyenne in years gone by. I've heard stories of it, haven't been here from it, uh, haven't been here during it, but I've lived in areas that were prone to flooding. I lived in Hurricane Alley in the 2004 hurricane season down there in Tampa, Florida, when Hurricane Francis came chewing across the state, big as Texas and slow as molasses in the winter. And so it just dumped rain on everything. And those, those waters rose and it flooded the lake behind our apartments. And you know, when you have alligators in your lake, that's a problem. You don't really want flooding even without alligators. You sure don't want it with alligators. But floods, floods and tide coming in and tidal waves coming in, those are those are tremendous forces of nature. And and, and unless you've unless you study it or think about it, or you've lived through it or something like that, you don't really appreciate their destructive power. Because it doesn't matter how strong you are. It does not matter how strong you are. The waves don't care. They'll come in and just lift you and all your strength and your weight right up and carry you out to sea miles away. And your body washes up 300 miles down, down the coast. Okay? Floods don't care. But if you build your house upon a rock, first of all, it's probably not right, by, right down by the disastrous waters, then is it? No. It's up a few dozen yards or more up on a rock that's solid and away from crashing waves and things like that most of the time. What's the lesson? Let the Word and the Spirit of Almighty God shape your life. How do I do that? 
read it, meditate on it, and if it seems to touch on something that applies to your life, then, well, that's part of the five parts of biblical study, isn't it? That's part of a deeper look. And that's part of uh, how does it apply directly to my life? That's all part of those five steps. Uh, well, how does it apply to me? Well, in most cases, it's actually pretty clear and it's pretty plain. Did you know that? Lots of people use the excuse not to read the Bible because they, they, uh, they use this excuse, uh, well, you know, it's all these different interpretations. I don't really know how it applies. It doesn't really apply to me. It's just for that time period, yada, yada, yada. And really, most of the time, it's a cop-out. It really is. Because it has touched on something in their life, and they don't want to change it. Because it has. But as disciples of Jesus, we ought to be willing. It concludes his Sermon on the Mount. It says in verse 28, And it came to pass when Jesus had ended these sayings, the people were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. The scribes were often mentioned in conjunction with the Pharisees. They weren't their own particular religious sect. Okay, the, the Pharisees were a sect. The Sadducees were a sect. I think there was a third. There was a, a third major uh, uh, sect that was influential in ancient Israel at that time, or in in um, in gospel era Israel at that time. I don't remember their name, but the scribes were exactly that. They were scribes. They wrote these things. They documented these things, and I believe they filled, to whatever extent, they fulfilled a teaching role. But none of these guys really taught with authority and they didn't teach with power they were what uh, one of the 20th century political scholars referred to as bloodless scholars they were bloodless scholars they didn't have any skin in this stuff it was just stuff that they had learned it was stuff that they had learned many times by rote they just understood it as as this as this collective set of facts right but they either weren't living it or they were completely missing the spirit of the thing by living it according to the letter and not according to the to the intent that the spirit of god that the, the spirit of god intended but jesus came on the scene and taught for what would be compiled in three solid chapters of very practical down to earth stuff that touched on real world problems. Notice he didn't touch on any of the obscure, um, I don't want to say wacky, because nothing about the law was really wacky, okay? I, I don't want to disrespect the law by even using that kind of language. But he didn't teach on any of the more, what we would consider obscure parts of the law. He didn't really talk about, um, he didn't really talk about, for example, not wearing clothes that were made out of mixed fabrics because that was part of the law of Moses. That You want to talk about an obscure ordinance that was in the law of Moses. Well, that was one of them. And there was a reason for that. It doesn't really translate over into the Old Testament, you know, or to the New Testament that, you know, if you're wearing a blended fabric, you're committing a sin. No, 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 no. The whole point of that law over in the Old Testament was because it was a lesson in purity and Israel was supposed to be pure in everything that they did. And it was a metaphoric example of or expression of that that expected standard of purity does that make sense okay don't when don't wear blended fabrics so cotton and wool they couldn't wear them blended into the same garment i didn't, don't think it said that you couldn't wear them at the same time you know linen pants just wrinkle up in a second anyway good for nothing fabric right there or uh you know in a wool coat you know 
there's nothing wrong with that. But the, the fibers themselves couldn't be blended. Well, Jesus didn't really talk about any of that stuff throughout this whole Sermon on the Mount. He didn't bring up those obscure parts of the law. He didn't, he didn't say one word throughout his entire teaching on this, uh, in these chapters about the proper way to offer animal sacrifices. He didn't say anything about that at all. Everything that he dealt with was much more down-to-earth and pragmatic and not so specialized. And if we were to go back and review... If we were to go back and review, you know, what does he talk to us about over back in chapter 5? He talks to us about being the salt of the earth. Okay? And he talks to us about being the light of the world. The salt of the earth and the light of the world. And that's what anybody who's in a position of righteousness ought to be. Because the world has far, far too many dark and wicked examples and influences, don't we? Hollywood's bursting at the seams with them. Professional sports has more of them than they even know what to do with. Anybody that's got any kind of celebrity status, what in the world kind of example are they putting out there? They're not usually good examples. Every now and then you've got someone who makes a stand and says, no, this is the way. This is what's right, and I'm sticking to my guns, and it actually is the right way. Every now and, then, every now and again you've got someone who dares stand up, but they always pay a tremendous price for it, don't they? If they're in the public eye, if they have any kind of celebrity status. Was it Kurt Cameron? A well-known actor from television sitcom back in what, the 90s, wasn't it? 80s or 90s? When he, and he went on to make some films. Well, he had the audacity to stand up and say, I am a born-again Christian in so many words. And he identifies very, very openly as a Christian. But if you look at his career now, what's happened to it? He's been completely pocketed. He's been pigeonholed. And you never see him in any kind of a major role because he's dared to make a stand. But Jesus tells us about being the light of the world, regardless of the consequences. Regardless of the consequences. And this is where this is the sort of thing where the test of the where the test of the Christian's character really occurs when there's a penalty for doing right when there's a threat of being duly punished for your Christian virtue. Well, what do we do in the face of that? Well, we know what we ought to do, right? We ought to say, "I'm going to do what's right." And I'm going to be what God expects me to be. Come what may. Come what may. There's an expression, but it's a, it's a bit harsh, you know, and it could be misinterpreted. But, you know, I'm going to do and be what God wants me to be no matter what. Well, what if it costs me my job? Well, like I told somebody yesterday, I was looking for a job and I found this one. I'll find another one. I'll find another one. You know, even, well, there's, what if there's a shortage of jobs? Hey. Hey, is God God or not? I've been unemployed before. God always met my need. And I've looked for a job and God's always been able to make a job happen, hasn't he? And so God does not forsake his children. When I think this came out in Sunday morning's message. David said in the Psalms, I have been young and now I am old. And two things I have not seen. And that is the righteous forsaken, nor his seed begging bread. True born-again Christians are not going to have to put themselves out there on the street corner with a sign or on the side of the road with a sign. We'll work for food. You know most of them are not interested in work. 
they are not interested in work. Some of them maybe, perhaps. I don't want to overly generalize that. But he talks, he taught, he taught us about this being the light, being the salt of the earth, a higher righteousness than that of the Pharisees and of religious hypocrites. He's taught us about adultery and divorce. He's taught us about oaths and taking vengeance and retaliation and how not to be that way. He's taught us about the right way to give and to do good things, not doing it to be lifted up in pride and to be seen of men. He's taught us the right way to pray and the right way to fast, if so be that we need to fast. He's taught us about possessions and masters and how you can't ride the fence between the world and the kingdom of God. You can't ride the fence between being a sinner and being a child of God. You can't. You've got to pick a side. And you've got to come down all the way on your side. Okay? And if you come down on the wrong side, then <laughs> remember that you can, you can change sides. Okay? You can change sides. You can come over to the right side. Likewise, if you're on the right side and you wake up and you decide, I want to be a sinner again, this isn't working for me, and you go over there, understand that you are under a tremendous condemnation and judgment, but it, that it's not too late. You can come back. And don't ever let the devil tell you otherwise. Don't ever let the devil tell you otherwise. Otherwise, So he's taught us of these things. He's taught us about anxiety and about God's kingdom, about judging and about hypocrisy and about the golden rule and about building your spiritual house on a rock solid foundation and how to do it. He didn't just say do it. He said how to do it. Take the word of God and say this, all right, this is the source code for my entire life. That's a techie term, all right? So they use a non-techie term. This is the source text for my entire life right here. God, show me, teach me, help me to understand, and help me to put it into practice. Because you'll be like that man that built his house on a rock. And nothing that comes your way will overthrow your house. Nothing will do it. That concludes Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, the first set, the first series in our red letter studies. Now, next week, we might be right back in our red letter studies in another part of the Gospels. We might pick up one of Paul's epistles. We might end up somewhere in the Old Testament. I'm going to be praying, see what God wants, but we will be studying something next week, rest assured. It's going to be good because, again, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for the believer. Amen. Thank you for listening to Come to the Table, Bible studies from the New Testament Christian Church of Cheyenne. Included in these presentations are red-letter studies on the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ, historical studies on the Old Testament, topical studies on biblical doctrines, and practical studies on Christian life. If you enjoyed this presentation, you can support our efforts by contributing at www.myntcc.org backslash Cheyenne WY giving.